Welcome to this episode of the Bible Toolbox, where we seek to help you enjoy the Bible through the tools that scholars and programmers have created for you. And we are excited about this episode today, where we have Dr. John Walton on with us. He was a professor at Moody for 20 years and Wheaton now for 21 years, and has written many, many books and done lots of scholarship. But we are, he's, his main focus is the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds the old testament so that is what we're going to focus on today so welcome john good to be here so let's just start off with a really basic question of what is the ancient near east like what are you talking about when you say this phrase good well it's actually both referring to space and time Uh, in terms of space it covers the cultures from egypt in the southwest uh, through the Levantine coast, which is Israel and Syria, the Aramaeans, up into modern-day Turkey with uh, the Hittites, as well as all the way east to the Babylonians and the Assyrians uh, in, the Medi- in, the, um, in the Mesopotamian basin. It includes Canaanites, of course, uh, and so that's basically in spatial terms. Uh, what the ancient Near East refers to. It also refers to a time period, beginning with our earliest written documents, which are about 3000 BC, uh, until the time of the Persian conquest of Babylon in 539 when Babylon fell. Uh, The Persians uh, are not really considered part of the ancient Near East. Uh, They have a very different worldview, uh, some similarities, but a lot of differences. And so generally, we, we sometimes include Persia in our studies, but mostly going up through the Assyrian Babylonian period uh, in about 500 BC. Okay. That's a broad span of time. A lot of time and space to cover. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever traveled to any of these ancient Near Eastern places? Uh, a few of them. Not as many as I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like read the inscriptions on the walls and... No, like no, no. <laughs> Even when you study these languages, uh, unless you really spend all of your days and all of your time in them, you can't just read them right out. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So let's let's begin. So that's the ancient Near East. What what is the relationship between the Old Testament and the ancient Near East? Well, the Old Testament, of course, was written by Israelites, for Israelites, and they are in that ancient Near Eastern cultural world. Mm -hmm. I call it the cultural river. It sort of dominates how people think about things. And so Israel's not in a vacuum. You know, they're not just kind of their own culture. They have a language that's related to those languages. They have a culture that's related to those cultures. And despite the fact that God gave them revelation that helped them to think differently in certain ways, in many, many ways, they think like people of their world. Mm -hmm. I like to say that an Israelite thought more like a Babylonian than they think like us. (laughs) Which Uh, makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, it's just because that's the world that they're in. So that's when we, that's why we talk about Israelites in, in their culture. The fact is, Whenever, whenever anybody writes or talks about something, 
they're doing so in relation to certain conversation partners. You know, when our theologians today write, they're writing in the context of their conversation partners today. And when Calvin wrote, he wrote in the, with conversation partners like Arminius and Luther with Erasmus and Justin with Trifo and, you know, everybody, Augustine with Pelagius, they, everybody has conversation partners. And what we have to recognize is that uh, for the Old Testament, Israel has the Babylonian and Egyptian and Canaanite worlds as their conversation partners. It's the world they live in. Hmm. Is there any place where that comes out clearly, where you see them responding directly to kind of some some ancient Eastern Babylonian sure. thought or I mean, Egyptian there thought? There are many, many examples, but we can look at things like Jeremiah 10 or Isaiah 40 or 44, where they're talking about the idols of the ancient world hmm. and how those idols are are worthless and why they're worthless. And that all plugs into how they were thinking in that ancient world context. Uh, it comes into larger questions like um, Israelites would have thought about law the same way that people around them thought about law. They won't think about law the way we think about it today. Mm. They would think about history the same way their world thought about history and events of the past and how you represent events of the past, what conventions you use. They, they wouldn't think the same way that we do today. So they're in that world. They think like people in that world. Uh, and um, what they say often is related to that world. And sometimes without explaining the differences, because all the Israelites knew how everybody in their world thought. Right. Hmm. So how, how do we come to the Bible then as people in the 21st century? Like, and not in that time period? Yeah. Well, we have a little bit of work to do because uh, we have to try to make some effort to join that audience. You know, the term I use a lot is that the Bible is written for us, but not to us. Mm. And we know that our translations help us to make the transition in language. And that's important. We can't pick up a Hebrew or Greek text and just read it unless we've studied it and not, not many get the chance to do that. But it's the same with culture. You can't just pick it up and read it uh, as if it's culture free. Uh, it is embedded in a culture. An example I've been using lately is I was reading a book and two of the characters were talking about their wish for a normal life. And one says to the other, I just want a nine to five, a white picket fence, a black lab and 2.5 kids. <laughs> now, that's perfectly sensible to us in our culture. But you can see how deeply culturally embedded that is mm -hmm. and how it would be difficult to decipher from another cultural standpoint. So and, how would a how would an Israelite answer that question? Well, What's right, the normal exactly. life that they're seeking? Right. Uh, everyone under their own vine and fig. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? We, uh, the idea of stability, normality, that's how they would say it. Sitting under their own vine and fig. Yeah. I think that's just, that's not like a crazy concept. I think we hear it in sermons all the time where, you know, we, we come across a, you know, unusual cultural practice and then right. the preacher always, you know, prefaces, well, in that culture, right. and then they go on to explain it. Exactly. So this isn't anything 
too new or radical. It's not just wild and crazy. Yeah. <laughs> when we interact with people of other cultures today, you know, at, on Wheaton's campus, we have people from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that when we interact with them, we cannot assume an American cultural perspective. And it takes a little bit of effort to bridge that gap. And that's all I'm saying, that when we read the Bible, we want to be alert to places where we need to bridge that gap. And one of the ways we do that is to be careful not to assume our own cultural way of thinking. Yeah. Can you give an example of that where we might assume our own into the into the Bible? Yeah. I mean, some of the ones I already mentioned with law and history are examples. Um, but on a more specific case, um, you take something like the Tower of Babel. And we read about making a name and we have assumptions that this has to do with pride and they're building a tower because they want to go up and do something uh, with with God, reach God or replace God or sit alongside of God or whatever. Um, But uh, what we find when we study the ancient world is that these towers are not built for people to go up. They were built for gods to come down. And we can't just put our intuitive reading in place. Um, We have to read it the way they would have understood all of that. And if they want God to come down, then making a name is not an issue of pride. Uh, They're trying to make a name because they think that if God comes down, uh, they will be able to meet his needs and he will be able to bring them prosperity. And therefore, they will be successful and flourishing. And that sounds more like greed than like pride. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, again, we have to be careful about imposing our own intuitive thinking on the text. Yeah, I even think of like the word slave or bondservant, like that carries so much either like racial and cultural weight in America versus like then it was just a job, basically, and then you were done or whatever. But that's a great example, Lydia, because we have this this word slave that we understand in certain ways in slavery and it involves dehumanization and it involves all kinds of aspects that are really, really, really bad. Uh, But in the ancient worlds in an agricultural setting like they had, uh, most slavery that they experienced would have been debt slavery. And it was basically an economic net to catch them when the other option was death, (laughs) and you know, starvation. And so it was an economic strategy that mm-hmm. provided the way for people to survive. Um, so a very different sort of thing. So again, that's a great example. Yeah. So what resources are there to help us come to the Bible with a proper perspective? Right. Well, the, the most basic resource and the one that we're kind of talking about here is the cultural background study Bible uh, that I had the privilege of working with working on general editor for the Old Testament. And in that study Bible, all of the study notes have to do with this ancient world culture. They involve archeology span and geography and manners and customs and ancient literature, uh, abstract ideas, uh, just ways people thought. And so all of the notes and sidebars all have to do with opening up that world. So that tool is probably the most accessible for people to get a sense of this ancient cultural river and to be alerted to places where they they might not know important information that could affect our reading. It also will help them to start identifying places where 
their intuition from our own cultural river might be leading them astray. Mm -hmm. uh, that particular study Bible uh, is an, an abridgment of a couple of other works, primarily the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. This is a five volume work and uh, it's, uh, it's amply illustrated and things of that sort and gives the same kind of information. Of course, this doesn't have the biblical text in it. Um, so uh, it's, it's all the study notes and more extensively than what's in the study Bible. So people could go to that as the next step. Both of those tools operate by going through the biblical text in a systematic way. Uh, another approach is to say, well, can we approach this topically? And yes, we can. And so another book that I've done is called Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. And this has chapters like uh, temples and sacrifices and the gods and law and history and divination and afterlife. So going through various topics that if you wanted to read what's in the ancient Near East and how does that compare to what we have in Israel. Cool. So those are some of the, the resources. Um, I've done some work on specific topics in the Lost World series. Uh, so we have the Lost World of Genesis 1 or the Lost World of Adam and Eve, the Lost World of the Torah, and things of that sort. And those those drill down into more specific topics. Mm -hmm. And then anyone even more interested can, like those Lost World books, you have tons of footnotes and cite other works and books. Right. To, and to follow up the, on the general works have footnotes as well, not the study Bible, yeah. of course, but the other ones. In the point. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, then there's there's no end to the books that can give you more specific information on particular topics. Note the wall behind me. In, in <laughs> it's a very impressive collection uh, you got there. <laughs> you know, whole cases of that information are primary texts from the ancient Near East. Uh, you know, most people aren't going to want to read those things. But the point is, there's loads of information available to help us understand the ancient world. How long did it take you to write the study Bible? That's hard to say, because we were really, again, working from this. So it's an abridgment process. It probably took a couple years to do that. Oh, it's just so impressive. Like, so I had editorial help. I had editorial help to yeah. uh, kind of sort through some things. Such a good resource. So you you wrote those resources. So I'm assuming you don't use those as references. So as you do your own, let's say you're doing your devotional Bible study and you come across something bizarre. Is there is there a go-to reference that you have as a scholar? I wish there were. Uh, but again, the, the once you move beyond the level of the five-volume background commentary, uh, then you've got to go to individual journal articles on individual topics, uh, individual primary texts on individual topics. Uh, another whole case you see behind me here, that whole case is books of collected articles. Mm. Um, and so lots of times some of those articles have things. And this case over here is biblical commentaries. And sometimes they have more information, although biblical commentaries don't always focus on the background information. It depends on the commentary. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's 
it's very difficult to identify something that's a go-to. You know, you have series like the Oxford uh, Handbook of Cuneiform Culture, which collects articles on specific kinds of things. Uh, there's also a general work, Civilizations of the Ancient Near East, which is a great collection of articles on a variety of different things. But many things that we might be interested in from the, uh, this is a four volume work, by the way, and now it's published in two volumes. Uh, and lots of the things we might ask about are covered in here. Lots of things we'd never dream of asking about are covered in here. <laughs> but lots of things we would ask about pertaining to the Bible wouldn't be referred to in here. Mm. Um, we also have collections of primary texts. So this is volume one of a four volume series, the context of scripture. And this is all just translations of ancient Near Eastern texts. So if people wanted to get to the primary literature, you know, you can do that. Uh, again, when you read those texts, you'd say, Boy, I, I don't necessarily see a lot of overlap with the Bible there. Um, and that's true, because that ends up being a cumulative sort of thing mm -hmm. uh, that you pick up along the way. So yeah, like yeah. reading reading that the context of scripture or you know other collections, it it helps you understand the river, the cultural river that the old testament world is in. Right. Right. It's not there's not always going to be direct parallels, but it'll be Correct. like giving you that mindset of Excellent a right Again, lots of what I try to do is I want to read everything that I can, primary literature, secondary literature, so that I can think more like them and less like me. <laughs> Would you say that this is kind of a going backwards into our conversation, but the Bible was affected by these cultures around it? Would you say that the cultures around it were also affected by what was going on in like God's realm, like with Israel and stuff? Or were they more just the ones getting affected? It's, it's mostly one directional. Um, you know, today, love it or hate it, the United States of America is a prominent, dominant cultural influence in the world. Mm -hmm. And some countries hate that, but that's true, but it is true. And uh, so there's dominant cultures. But if you say, so how much is, is the U.S. affected by Costa Rica? Well, not so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the cultural influence tends to be unidirectional. And that's the same sort of comparison that you'd say between you know, Egypt or Assyria. And Israel. Israel is just a little place. Mm -hmm. And they have their important distinctives, uh, but they wouldn't have been in much of a position to influence the larger ancient Near Eastern world. Which I kind of feel like just goes along with the, the thought of the Bible, too, that God doesn't use like huge national powers. He has his right. people and he gets things done, even it's yeah. in small. You know, quantities. even when people in Assyria or Babylon might have been confronted with um, an Israelite, an Israelite theology, it would have been just confusing and seemed radically idiosyncratic, you know, for Daniel and his friends to stand up and make their statements. Um, you know, th this just made, would have made no sense to them at all. Uh, you know, for in the ancient world, 
their polytheism was not just an issue of the number of gods. Their polytheism was a reflection of the idea that the gods acted and lived in community because community identity was kind of how things worked in the ancient world. And so there's this corporate way of thinking and the gods had a community. Of course they did. Humans have a community and they, they gave their identity in their community. And so to tell somebody like that, that there's only one God, they would say, that makes no sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Why, uh, you know, everybody needs a community in order to gain their identity. Where's this community? I mean, there's only one God. And to think that one God does everything. I mean, think about a school where the president has to do everything, teach the classes, clean the classrooms, clean the restrooms, uh, do the marketing, do the, right? Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? (laughs) And so it would have been totally nonsensical in the ancient world. And of course, that's why the Israelites have such trouble, you know, grasping that concept Mm -hmm. and embracing it because it just didn't make any sense to them. Yeah. Forms a lot of compassion and empathy for them that we're not like, how can you not understand this? Exactly. Clearly they didn't (laughs) for a reason. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. So we like to ask all the people we have on just about your own personal devotions. What, what's it like, or how do you, how do you just read the Bible and, and hear from God? What are your practices? Uh, I'm in the Bible every day and lots of times all day. Uh, So in that sense, I don't think of a devotional time as kind of a touching base with God at the beginning or end of the day. Um, The idea is that we want to connect with God so that we are in his presence all day. And that idea of being connected to God, uh, not only in in prayer, but let me explain that. I think of prayer more like communion instead of communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, Living in the presence of God, practicing the presence of God. And that idea, and that's true with the communion with God, and it's true with the interaction with Scripture. Because of my profession, it's very easy to be in Scripture all day long, Mm -hmm. and I often am. And so I look at it not as kind of a devotional time, but rather a life that's filled with communion and engagement. Mm -hmm. Great, wise perspective. Yeah, and I know you're a you're a Sunday school teacher at your church. How do uh, you? Yeah, at times I have been. Right now I'm not, but okay. Looking for the next opportunity. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Are there any Are there any tips you you've given to people in the past of how to start studying the Bible or how how to develop their own Bible reading? I talk about it all the time. Uh, both in my classes here at school and in any opportunities they have in churches, whether it's with my own church or in the speaking I do in various other churches. I have a book that's just ready to come out in a couple months called Wisdom for Faithful Reading, mm-hmm. Principles and Practices for Interpreting the Old Testament. And so that's a book that would help people kind of at the front end 
of trying to get into thinking about approaching the Old Testament. It's got sections on ancient Near East surprise. And, uh, but it's got you know, lots of other th- aspects of how, how can we be faithful readers? You know, lots of people think about, well, I want to get the right interpretation. Well, that's good. That's, that's great. But the fact is we grow and learn all the time. And therefore, what might seem sufficient or adequate or even right at one point might take a different shape as time goes on. Uh, or we always want to be faithful. And faithful means that we can absorb new insights and new perspectives and new information and maybe even change our minds on some things and so uh, that idea of uh, not saying i'm going to arrive at the right answer on everything to say i'm going to make every attempt to be a faithful reader throughout my life Hmm. that's this relieves a lot of pressure too to get it right the first time right Um, i've i've known colleagues in the past who have been very reluctant to change their mind on something because they say, I've taught this for 30 years. If I change my mind now, then it's like I've taught the wrong thing for 30 years. There's a flaw in that reasoning. Uh, And that's why I feel more confident trying to teach method rather than to teach answers. Um, And I would love to see more of that in our churches as well pastors who help their congregations to understand methodology. How should we be approaching scripture? What does it give us? What does it do for us? What should we be looking for? And what shouldn't we be looking for? Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what I deal with in this new book, Wisdom for Faithful Reading. Nice. Awesome. Well, we're nearing the end of our time here, but is there any final thoughts that you want to say? Not really, except that whole idea that methodology matters. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we approach the text, what we expect from it, and how we find what we expect from it does matter. And I've found that ancient Near Eastern understanding mm-hmm. can be uh, one of the important tools that we can use uh, in our methods. And that's what the Cultural Background Study Bible tries to make available to people. Yeah, so we'll put the link for that book and some other resources in our website in the descriptions below. Mm-hmm. So hopefully our listeners and audience can take advantage of that great resource that you've given to us. So, yeah. thanks. Thanks, for, thanks for being on and giving us your time. Yeah. Sure, great talking with you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Bible Toolbox. Visit our website at thebibletoolbox.com for more information and resources about the content. Be sure to contact us with suggestions of any tools you'd like us to review. And thank you to those who support us on Patreon and who have reached out with encouraging messages. We couldn't do it without you. 